The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. The last few weeks, Jesus has been commenting on the third sign that he performed. He went to a pool near Jerusalem and healed a paralyzed man by merely saying, get up, take your bed, and walk. Well, this invited the anger of the religious leaders because they believed you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath day, which happened to be the day that Jesus performed the miracle. The Sabbath was a special day for the Jews. It was holy. It was meant for renewal and regeneration. No one was allowed to do anything on the Sabbath, not even pick up wood. And here Jesus is telling this paralyzed man to pick up his wooden pallet, his bed, and walk. But the religious leaders couldn't see the God-man, Jesus, at work. All they saw was a mere man breaking what they believed to be the rules. So Jesus was teaching them what they were missing, that he is the Son of God, the Creator, that he is the one with the power to resurrect, that he is the one with the authority to judge. In short, he is God. It's his law, his Sabbath. So either... Jesus was sinning by breaking the Sabbath and healing a man, or the religious leaders somehow misunderstood the Sabbath. Obviously, it's option B, that they didn't quite understand exactly what the Sabbath was for or who was Lord over the Sabbath. And this is ironic, because these men were supposedly the ones that were called to understand. They were called to know the Scriptures internally, and yet they didn't know the one whom Scripture was prophesying. And they were called to know internally the message of the prophets in the Old Testament, and yet they didn't know the ones whom the prophets were modeling and foreshadowing. And because they sought the glory of man, they loved to heap on praises, and they loved the power of their position, they completely missed that their creator and redeemer was doing something new right in front of them. We pause to think about how we could fall into that same trap, that it is possible to claim to love God and not to see Him as He stands before us and moves among us. Worse, we could be in the shoes that the religious leaders found themselves in because this hatred for Jesus actually led for their desire to kill Him, to put Him to death. As John tells us in verse 18 of chapter 5, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Not because he was healing on the Sabbath, but because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. So there's tension rising. The heat is turning up on Jesus by the religious leaders who undoubtedly went to the local officials in the government to try to begin to scheme to get rid of Jesus because he was taking away their prestige and power. So Jesus apparently decides to let things cool off a little bit. And that's where we find ourselves in verses 1 through 4, setting up this next sign that we will see. Verse 1 of chapter 6, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. This detail, the other side of the Sea of Galilee, kind of initially seems like a throwaway detail, but it's very important because it's safe to assume that the other side of the Sea of Galilee for John and for his original readers meant not in the area where the religious leaders had any kind of authority. Galilee was essentially split up into three sections during the day of Jesus. There was the area to the west in Galilee, 
uh, called Galilee that was ruled over by Herod. But then there were two other spots too. On this map in the northeast, you have green, which was Philip the Tetrarch ruled over there. And then on the orange in the, the, the southeast was ruled by uh, the, the governors of Syria. So the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus in this pink area. What does Jesus do? Well, he goes to another area. Luke tells us that he went to Bethsaida, which would have been Philip the Tetrarch's territory. And just like today, if you did something wrong in Mobile and the police are chasing you, where do you go? Mississippi, of course, because you cross the state line and their jurisdiction ended, right? And so the same thing's happening. Jesus is letting things cool down. He goes to another territory where the religious leaders don't have as much power. It's safe on the other side of the sea. But there's a problem with the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's even true today. There's just not a whole lot going on. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a really steep plateau, and there's not a lot growing. There's no towns. And so it's kind of a desolate place. Verse 2 shows us that this will become a problem. And a large crowd was following him, being Jesus, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Why were the crowds following Jesus? Important point, because of the signs, what Jesus is doing. Not who he is, but because of what he's doing. Two-thirds of the signs that we've seen so far uh, have occurred in Canaan near the Sea of Galilee, not too far away. So news is spreading fast. There's a miracle man walking around town healing people. So it's time to get your sick and bring them to him. We want to see another sign, the people say. Verse 3, Jesus went up the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. If he went to the east side of Galilee, outside of the jurisdiction of uh, the, the territory where the religious leaders are, uh, there was a lot of mountains. I had the opportunity to go to Israel and then spend three days in Galilee in January. And if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee from the west towards the east, this is kind of the view that you get. You can kind of see it jet up really, really quickly. And then there's a flat plateau. Um, that territory beyond there is, is uh, Syria. Uh, Galilee is really small. You can fit the entire lake in, in, the, in Mobile Bay, interestingly enough. Uh, so you can kind of see, yes, there was a mountain where Jesus would have, would have been able to, uh, to, to, to have all of these people gather around him. In fact, um, there's an excavation going on of Bethsaida, uh, which if Luke has shown us, that Jesus is in Bethsaida, there's really only a couple places where this event could have occurred, and this is one of them. I was able to go to the, to the very spot where Jesus may have performed this miracle. And in these next pictures, you can kind of see uh, that with the, with the mountain behind him and the sea in front of him, if you look to your left and to your right, still to this day, there's not a lot going on. It's really grassy. You could fit a lot of people there, but there were no McDonald's. There were no grocery stores. It would take a day to go to Capernaum or Tiberias uh, if you wanted to get food. So there's a problem brewing. Why are there so many people, though? Well, John tells us in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This is an important detail because it tells us why there are so many people. And second, it sets up the sign and the rest of chapter 6. You see, Passover was one of the three religious pilgrimages that every able-bodied man was obligated to make as a Hebrew guy. If you were coming from Rome or Asia Minor or Syria, you would have had to come in through this Galilee region. So you can imagine at this 
point in the year, there are thousands of Jewish pilgrims all descending onto Galilee. Now, normally what they would do is they would go around the west part of the Sea of Galilee so that they can hit Capernaum and Tiberias and stay a night in like a, you know, hotel or something. But oddly, they're going now around the east. Why? Because of the miracle man. And that's where he is, and we want to hear more about him. How large was this crowd? John tells us in verse 10 that it was 5,000 men. Now, you can imagine, because it's the Passover, if 5,000 men are there, these men are also supposed to be bringing at least their oldest son to teach their son how to do this pilgrimage. So if all 5,000 men brought at least one son, how many people are there? I studied theology, but I can do a little math. That's 10,000 people, right? Matthew gives us another detail, that there were women and children present as well. So these women wouldn't be on the pilgrimage, but they would be from the Galilee region. And they're hearing about Jesus and how he healed the official son. And they're like, well, I want my kids to know Jesus. So moms are bringing kids too. It could be well over 10,000 people are gathering on a desolate side of the Sea of Galilee. That's why Passover is an important point. But I think even more importantly, John is setting up chapter 6 and really the rest of the gospel to show us that what Jesus is leading is a new exodus in a new Passover celebration, that he is the new Moses who's leading us out of an even more dangerous and oppressive Egypt, that being slavery to sin. This is important because it's the backdrop of all of chapter 6, and we must keep that in mind as we continue to move forward. But this miracle that we've read and that we're about to go into, I think is probably one of the most significant miracles that Jesus performs. Not that the others are insignificant, but this one has a special place. And I think I'm justified in saying that because the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded by all four Gospels, aside from the resurrection of Christ. So those are the two things they all have in common. Jesus raises from the dead and he feeds 5,000. Why? What other sign, what other miracle captures the dual role of Christ as both creator and redeemer than this miracle? Jesus has just argued that he's God, he's creator, which is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. And Jesus has just argued that as God, he is our redeemer, the one whom the prophets testify of, that scriptures testify of, that the miracles testify of that in him we believe so that we may have life, he told us in 539. Now, Jesus is out to prove that fact, that he is our creator by displaying power over nature, by miraculously multiplying loaves and fishes, and that he proves to be our redeemer by displaying that he is the great miracle maker, greater than prophets in the Old Testament like Moses and Elisha, and that he gifts us what we need and that he gives us what we need in abundance, and that he's concerned for the leftovers, and that he may not be the king that we want sometimes, but he's the king that we need. He's our redeeming king. And only when we recognize that he's the king that we need does he become the king that we want. Because the longer that we are in relation with the king that we need, our hearts reorient towards the desires and wants of his heart, and he becomes the king that we want. That's a lot packed into this miracle. And it all starts in an odd place. Hopelessness. Despair. A problem that seems insurmountable. Verses 5 through 6. Lifting up his eyes then, 
and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, so where are we to buy food so that these people may eat? And then as an aside, John tells the reader, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. Problem, how do you feed 5,000 people? Restaurant owners are like, good question, <laughs> right? Still a problem today, right? This is the question that Jesus poses. But to whom does he specifically pose this question? Philip. Interesting, isn't it? Why? Last time we saw Philip is the first time we saw Philip. When he's found by Jesus in Galilee, same spot. And Philip goes to Nathanael, another disciple, and says, making a declaration of faith, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. It's interesting because this is exactly the shortcoming that Jesus pointed out about the religious leaders. They did not believe that Jesus was the one about whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. But here you've got Philip, an average guy from Galilee, no religious training. He got it right away, immediately. So Jesus wants to put this faith to the test. That word to test is also translated as to prove, to put under some kind of test to stress it and see how strong it is. So again, Jesus asked Philip, how will we solve this seemingly insurmountable problem? Where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? Philip looks around, looks at the GPS, notices there's nothing on Yelp for a few miles. And then he responds. Philip answered him. Ah, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Philip's answer, we can't feed these people. It's impossible. We would need 200 denarii at this point in time, eight months wages to even begin to make a dent. And even then, we're just giving them an appetizer too many people, too few resources. We cannot acquire, purchase, buy what we need to get over this problem. The situation is hopeless. What is the strength of Philip's faith here? It's being put under pressure, isn't it? The pressure of hopelessness. But isn't Philip the one who said, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't he the one who enjoyed the good wine that Jesus miraculously created at Canaan? Isn't Philip one who witnessed Jesus heal a paralyzed man? Isn't he the one who heard Jesus proclaim that he's the Son of God, the Resurrector, the Judge? Didn't Philip believe and see God at work and now he reverts to doubt? Well, he's not alone. Verses 8 through 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, well, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but, but what are they for so many? See, there's a growing consensus among the disciples. They're faced with a hopeless situation. Philip says, we can't without money. We can't acquire. We can't buy purchase what we need to overcome this. It's hopeless. 
Andrew says we can't without more. Even if we could overcome it with what we have, we don't have enough. So it's hopeless. Hopelessness is defeating the disciples because they can't overcome it. And here comes, I think, the core, the center of what this sign is trying to tell us. God is leading us to a realization that his son is truly the one who prophets in scripture testify, showing us that as the greater Moses, as the greater Elisha, and that just as God provided for his people through Moses and Elisha, God will also provide for his people today through himself in the son of God. And in that provision, hopelessness is defeated because what we're given, not what we buy, but what we're given is given in abundance and drowns out despair. Jesus says, I know you can't, but I can. And scripture has promised this I can from the very beginning. See, to me, it seems that all three of the witnesses that we saw in chapter 5, so the prophets, scripture, the miracles, and then the three things that Jesus describes himself as, the son of God, the resurrector, the judge, all these are like rivers, and they're dumping into a tributary that is this miracle. Everything that we saw in 5, it's being put into practice here, which is why I think the four gospels record it. Let's, let's break all that down. This is a super important. The disciples have failed the test. In the face of hopelessness, they succumb to it. They say, we can't. And in one sense, they're right. The disciples can't, can they? And in situations of hopelessness, we try to buy our way out, or don't we? But in the end, we always come up short too. We can't pay for what we need, like Philip says, and we can't provide what we need, like Andrew says. What we have isn't enough. But there is only one who can pay for and provide what we need. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who received so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Do you see what happened? The disciples rightly recognized their shortcoming. They couldn't pay, they couldn't provide. The situation was hopeless, but there was one who could pay and who could provide. And this is at the core of the miracle. You see, the Lord Jesus is the one who both pays for and gives freely in the midst of hopelessness. And he's the only one. That the Lord Jesus is the one who both pays for and gives freely in the midst of our hopelessness. And when he gives, he gives in excess there were leftovers, enough to fill more than what they started with. The people ate as much as they wanted. And yet the disciples uh, let despair get the best of them. Who's been where the disciples were? We believe God, we see God at work in our lives, then we're presented with a situation that seems insurmountable. And we doubt and we succumb to hopelessness. And instead of looking up to heaven, 
our initial reaction is to look around for help. We look to our bank accounts, counselors, friends, jobs, rather than toward the endless storehouse of God's provision and abundant provision in his son. And in those moments of feeling hopeless, that hopelessness feels amplified. We're not able to pay. The problem seems insurmountable. The relationship that's broken seems irredeemable. The guilt of sin feels crushing. And then, at least in my experience, the first thing you feel is like anger towards God, right? Why did you put me in this situation? Why, why are we not meeting in Tiberias where there's food? Why do we have to meet over here where it's desolate and we're going to starve to death? And our, our, our faith bends under the weight of hopelessness. And we forget all of the times before that God had provided and healed and redeemed. You see, these moments of hopelessness, God actually loves to turn into a lesson of hope. He loves to turn evil and, and shortcomings and problems into something that's good, that they can become gifts of God to teach us and remind us that he can provide and he will provide. And not only that he will provide, but that he loves to provide. And so our faith and trust in him grows more, that we rely that he will give us what we need in abundance, not what we want, but what we need. So when faced with hopelessness in life, where do you run? Are we like the disciples who run to a bank account, a wallet, to work, to busy our hands of how are we going to do this? If so, eventually you're going to conclude like Philip did, I can't. Do you run to what you have? What feels like we have in control of our life? This little bit of bread, this little bit of fish, and yet add, but what are these? Because you will eventually conclude, as Andrew did, I can't. Instead, we ought to run to Jesus first because only he can purchase what you need by his blood. Forgiveness, redemption, healing. And only he can give what you need in the midst of hopelessness. Faith and joy, love and hope. And do you know what he gives you? He gives you these things in abundance more than what you need so that you can eat joy, faith, hope, and love to your fill. Only Jesus says, I can and I will. I think that's the core message we're supposed to walk away from here. But it's deeper. There's strata of lessons to be found in this incredible miracle. It runs deeper still it causes us to realize who Jesus is as the prophet who is greater than Moses and Elisha. And this, uh, this theme of Jesus as the greater Moses is going to run all throughout chapter 6. We're going to repeat it and return to it over and over and over again. But I want to draw our attention to why we're going to do that. When's the last time we saw a really big group of people in the wilderness that got really hungry, miraculously, bread showed up, and they ate as much as they could? Famous story of the Exodus, right? Manna, bread from heaven. And with this fourth sign, Jesus is setting up chapter 6 to show us that he is the greater Moses, that he is the one that supplies not just bread that dissipates after a day, but bread that never ends because he is the bread of life. 
and that he is the one that's doing the miracle, right? So that's really important, but we're going to come back to it over and over again as chapter 6 unfolds against that backdrop of the new Passover, of the, 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 the newer and, and, and greater Moses. But what could happen if we focus just on that aspect of this miracle, the theme of Jesus as the greater Moses could overshadow another theme that's a little bit more difficult to discern, but it's clearly there. And that is the theme that Jesus is the greater Elisha. So showing that not only is Jesus the greater Moses, who is the representative of the law, but that he is also the greater Elisha, who is a representative of the prophets, both the law and the prophets, just like he said in chapter 5. So what I want to do is I want to dive deep into this greater Elisha theme, and in the weeks following, we'll return to this greater Moses theme. Jesus is the greater Elisha. Did you notice the type of bread that Jesus multiplied? What is it? Look back in the text. Barley bread. Barley bread. Why that detail? Like, who cares? Just tell us it was bread, right? No ink is wasted in Scripture. As amazing as it is that Jesus multiplied the bread, it's not actually a unique or original miracle. You see, in 2 Kings, the prophet Elisha faced a similar hopeless situation. There's famine in Israel. There are a lot of mouths to feed, about 100 men. Fortunately, God provided. In 2 Kings 4, 42 through 45, or 44, it reads, A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of what? Barley. And the fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But a servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, being Elisha. Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of God. Sound familiar? Like getting deja vu, aren't we? Too many mouths to feed, no possibility of food. One person brings a little amount of specifically barley bread. All the people ate Bread miraculously multiplied, some bread was left over. So why would Jesus repeat this miracle only on a larger scale? When you look at Elisha's prophetic career, and I highly recommend you do, it's not that long, it's just a handful of chapters in 2 Kings, you'll notice that the miracles that he got to witness and be a part of sound really familiar to the miracles that we've been hearing and will hear about. For example, God, through Elisha, miraculously filled a woman's jar of oil to prevent her sons from being sold into debt slavery, resurrected a young boy after he became ill and died, healed a government official of leprosy, an incurable disease, and caused an axe head to float on water, which unless it's made of ceramic, doesn't happen. Where have we heard a jar miraculously filling sons miraculously healing, incurable ailments miraculously disappearing, and when will we hear of sons resurrecting and something on top of water floating that shouldn't float? Spoiler alert, next week, Jesus is going to walk on water. <laughs> right? Do you see what Jesus is doing? 
He is asserting himself, rightly, over the prophets of old, declaring himself to be greater than the heroes that the people eating fish and bread in Jesus' day would have adored. How quickly do you think it would have taken one guy to be eating barley bread and go, oh, God, this is barley bread. And after he'd swallowed, right? Didn't Elijah miraculously feed a hundred men with barley bread too? Like how many of us are here? <laughs> Wait, Elisha only had 20 loaves for a hundred men. Jesus only had five for over 5,000. Surely Jesus is greater than Elisha. Look how much bigger the miracle is. That's where our eyes are drawn to, right? Like, man, Jesus is better because he made more bread for more people. And while that's true, that's not the point. It's deeper than that because Elisha didn't actually perform the miracle. He was a mere conduit, a vessel, a tool through which the Spirit of God performed the miracle. How's that different to Jesus? Think back to how Jesus has been performing every single miraculous sign we've seen so far in John's gospel. What action did he take? What work with his hands did he perform? Sign number one, he told the servants, fill the jars with water, now draw some out, it'll be wine. Sign number two, go, your son will live. Sign number three, pick up your mat, take up, or get up, take up your bed, and walk. And sign number four, he lifts the bread, blesses it with his words, and it goes out. You see, Jesus never actually works for the miracle. He speaks his word as the capital W word of God, and by the power of God, it is. Where else in scripture do you see a mere command making the miraculous happen? And God said, let there be light. And there was. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation like barley. And there was. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures like fish. And there was. And Jesus blessed the bread and fish. And there were. You see, Moses and Elijah were prophets used by God, but Jesus is the prophet who is God. That's what makes him the greater Moses and Elisha. That they were prophets merely used by God, but that Jesus is the capital P prophet who is himself God. This miracle is a realization that the Son is truly the one whom the prophets in Scripture testified about showing that he is greater than all of them, even Moses, even Elisha. And so the lingering question for John's readers is, do you still not believe? But this miracle has yet another layer as we drill down. It's calling our attention to a revelation of the person and work of the Son, that he's not merely the creator who speaks, but he's also the redeemer who saves. I'm going to reread that portion of the passage, and I want you to pay special attention to the command that Jesus gives the disciples. What does he have the disciples do? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there's much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had their fill, he told the disciples, this is important, 
gather up the leftover fragments that they may not be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves that were left by those who had eaten. Jesus is creator who redeems. Is Jesus just really concerned to have a doggy bag here? Right, like I, this is an argument in my household and I'm wrong, I know I am, but I'm obstinate. So what do we do with leftovers? I'm like, pitch them. <laughs> Cause they'll have amoebas on them that grow and that's gross, right? My wife's like, no, we need to be thrifty and you only took two bites out of the chicken, you're gonna eat it tomorrow night. And like a little toddler, I cry about it. I don't like leftovers, but that just means I'm ungodly. <laughs> Apparently because of this text. I'm a pragmatic guy. If I'm a disciple and I witness Jesus literally create fish and loaves and he goes, now pick up the leftovers. I'm like, why? We don't need leftovers. You're our grocery store. <laughs> we'll always get fish and loaves from you. Who cares about them? If Jesus can create bread from nothing, why is he so concerned about the leftovers? Because Jesus' true concern isn't with the leftovers, it's with the left outs. Those who are left out of his kingdom. Jesus, who has just created many loaves of bread, is deeply concerned about these fragments. He doesn't want any lost. He commands the disciples, gather up the leftovers that nothing may be lost. He wants to redeem the lost fragments. How do I know that? The word lost here is really specific in Greek, apolemi. It's not used very often. And it's almost exclusively used to, dis to discuss people who are perishing and being destroyed in John's gospel. Really important. First time we see this word apolemy was John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not apolemy, perish, be lost, be destroyed, but have life eternal, eternal life. And it's the same word that Jesus uses when he speaks about those whom the Father gives to him like later in this chapter in 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, the Father, that I should not apollo me, lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, resurrection, on the last day. And later in John 10, 28, I will give them life eternal or eternal life, and they will never apollo me, perish, be destroyed, be lost, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. They're safe in my hands. Jesus obviously cares about those who are perishing, who are lost, who are being destroyed. That's why he came. That's why he taught the seeker Nicodemus. It's why he is gracious to the Samaritan woman. It's why he's healing the sick. It's why he's confronting religious leaders. It's why he's feeding the masses. We get that. We get that Jesus is concerned for the left outs, the leftovers, those that are subject to being polemy, lost, destroyed, perishing. What's less obvious, though, and I think is a really important point for us and can only be discerned from a careful reading of this text is, how does he want to expand his care for those perishing in the world? What action or work does he want to occur so that the leftovers would not perish, so that the lost would not be destroyed? Whom does Jesus command to gather up the leftover fragments that they might not be lost? The disciples. Those whom Jesus has chosen for himself. Those who are following Christ, albeit imperfectly. 
those who listen to what Jesus is teaching, those who see what Jesus is doing in the world. Does this description fit you? Have you been called? Do you follow? Do you listen to him? Do you watch him work? If so, don't you know that Jesus has called you to gather up the leftover fragments that they may not be lost? He's inviting you to participate in his work of concern for those who are perishing. As creator and redeemer, Jesus is both the one who creates for us redemption. He created the possibility that we may be saved through his righteous life, bloody death on a cross, and glorious resurrection. And he is the bread of life, the one to whom we run to and receive nourishment for our redemption. The one who wants to ensure that he will lose no one that the Father gives to him. Later in this chapter, he will say, I am the bread of life. That whole miracle we did, it was about me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, Apollo me, of all that has been given me, but raise them up in the last day, resurrection. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why Jesus is so concerned with the leftovers, the fragments, the things we think should go in a doggy bag. He doesn't want them to perish. So how does he keep them from perishing? He commands his disciples to go and collect them. Jesus is doing the miraculous in lives all around us. The Father is constantly calling people to his kingdom. The Spirit is constantly drawing people up. The Son is moving and working in this world. The question we have to ask ourselves is, will we join in what God is doing? Will you gather up the leftover fragments so that none may be lost? It's the very thing that Jesus tells us to do at the end of his earthly ministry. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Like the multiplication of loaves and fish, Jesus desires to multiply disciples through disciples. So which fragments are you collecting? Whose fragmented lives are you speaking the gospel into? Who are the broken, scattered lives that you are collecting and taking to Jesus? Do you share the same concern for your fragmented neighbors as Jesus does? We ought to go and collect the fragments in response to who our Creator and Redeemer is, because were you not collected by a disciple and brought to the King? I mean, praise God that this is what he does, right? He doesn't just hit the hard reset button on humanity. He promised never to do that again in Genesis. But that is tricky because it's going to cost him his life. He would rather not just recreate bread and loaves, not recreate people, than go through the cross to see them redeemed. That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? If he can create bread, he can create new people. 
but his love for his creation is so deep that he would rather die and go through the cross to redeem us rather than just recreate us. The people didn't get that, though. They didn't see the bread of life. They just saw a guy giving them bread. And so they missed it. I think the disciples are part of this, too. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him, being Jesus, by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It'd be a confusing passage, like, how do you take somebody and make them king? Right? We live in a democracy. Like, no, I had to go to that, you know, Catholic church or public library twice and declare what party I'm a part of. And then we vote them in, right? That's how we do it? No, not in this day. In this day, there was uh, hope in the air. The Jews hated Gentile Rome. They hated that they were ruled by them. They longed for a day when Israel would be like it was during the years of David, when a Hebrew king sat on a Hebrew throne over a Hebrew nation. God promised this to them. He said in 1 Kings 9, 5, the promise to David was, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But in this day, when you had Herod as the local puppet for Caesar, it kind of feels like there's no man on the throne. And we're getting impatient. And so all sorts of people started coming forward and saying, I'm the man that should be on the throne that God promised. Two examples. One was a guy named Judas of Galilee. He taught that you should not pay taxes to Rome because it was a sin. Some of you were like, go on. <laughs> and then the people stopped paying taxes. Now you're really interested, right? And then Rome said, okay, you don't want to pay taxes? You're dead. <laughs> like, okay, never mind. That guy's gone. Then another guy rose up. He says, no, it's not just taxes. It's a sin to be under the authority of Rome, period. Therefore, we're going to go out into the wilderness, crossing the Jordan River, and we're going to set up an army, we're going to build a new kingdom, and we're going to overthrow Rome. True or false? Rome thought that was a cool idea. False. So they chased the people to the Jordan River, and the prophet said, don't worry, just like Israel entered the Jordan River as it was parted under Joshua's command, so God will part the river under my command, and then we'll start a new kingdom. And he got to the river, and he was like, part. And guess what the river did? not part. <laughs> it continued to flow. And Rome slaughtered him, beheaded that guy, took it back to Jerusalem and said, try again. Time after time after time, there were failed prophets. You want to know why? Because they all claimed to be a prophet and promised something they couldn't keep. Now here's a guy who's saying he is greater than the prophets and he's proving it. Can you feel the fever pitch that would have been growing with the people? Finally, we got the guy that's going to overthrow Rome. And this political frenzy must have immediately boiled with the people there in Galilee, that they wanted to make him king, that they would say, this is the candidate who's going to make Israel great again, because yes, we can. We always want that one person, right? doesn't matter what side of politics you're on. Jesus says, mm-mm, because there's a greater work to be done. The kingship you want me for is too small. The universe is my footstool. There's something better that's going to occur, and you won't get it until I resurrect from it. But the people here grew impatient. They wanted God's kingdom now. They wanted God's kingdom defined by their terms. They wanted to hail Jesus by their own viewing, how they think he should be. So they unwittingly presented him with the temptation to gain all power and authority 
through any way but the cross. You see the problem is, and why Jesus had to remove himself? The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all present the famous temptation of Jesus by Satan. He goes into the wilderness 40 days, and Satan says towards the end of that, hey, if you just bow your knee to me, I'll give you all power and authority on earth. And here, the people are trying to make him king by giving him power and authority on earth. Satan was tempting Jesus by becoming king on his terms, and the people are tempting Jesus by becoming king on their terms. Why was this a temptation? Because neither of these two options led through the cross. But as Jesus faithfully declares later in this chapter, I have come down for heaven, from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And the will of the one who sent me has a road leading directly through Calvary. So Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. We can't hail Jesus as king on our terms. How often do we say to God, I'll worship you if, I'll obey you if, I'll follow you if, if you continue to give me what I want because that barley loaf and fish was delicious, I'll serve you. Keep the food coming. Keep my family happy, my career stable, my health good. Then I'll call you Lord. Then I'll hail you as king. Do we know what we're saying when we do that? My love for Jesus is predicated on what he does, not who he is. And what kind of relationship is that? Why do you love your spouse, your parents, your children? Do you love them because what they do for you or because of who they are? Let me ask it a different way. How do you prefer to be loved by someone? As a result of what you do for them or a result of merely who you are? It's good to love what Jesus does, but never before loving who Jesus is. Because if you don't love who Jesus is, you will misunderstand his works, which is exactly what happened to the people. And only when you love Jesus for who he is first can you truly see what his works are doing. Otherwise, you end up hailing a Jesus that doesn't even exist, and he ends up slipping away. Church, let us be a people who loves Jesus for who he is, our creator and our redeemer. And then let us hail him as king, as citizens who enjoy what he does out of love for his people. And let us be the kind of people who rightly sees Jesus as the greater prophet, God himself, who gives abundantly in our hopelessness. And let us be the kind of citizens who obey King Jesus when out of concern for the fragments that he has, we share it. And we go and we gather them up so that they may not perish. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what an amazing miracle, a display of your power through the Son, that he is providing us all the evidence we need that his declaration to be the one about whom your works and Scripture and the prophets testify is true. Father, we confess that at times we don't see Jesus for who he wants us to see him, and we demand to hail him on our terms. We repent in those moments. Father, I pray that we would share the Son's same heart that as our creator and redeemer who went out and collected us, we would join him in the work that he has for us to go and to collect the fragments, those who are perishing, to speak the gospel into their lives and bring them back to you. Father, we love that you have done this for us. We praise you for eternity. Let us hail the true King Jesus, our creator and redeemer, the one who goes out, who fills our needs in hopelessness and redeems the leftovers. It's in his name that we pray, amen.